take our Bibles, turn to Psalm 46. As you're turning there in Psalm 46, just a couple other things. Um, we were here not too terribly long ago. I think it was in September-ish, about. Um, but I um, totaled up the miles. Uh, we have to keep track of our, well, I keep track of our miles for tax purposes mostly, but uh, it was over 20,000 miles ago that we were here last in September. I've been across the country a couple of times down in Southern California, up in Northern Idaho, Spokane, Washington, across the Southeast, and um, now back up this way. This is mostly a trip for us to uh, spend a little bit of time with family, with Paula's parents and uh, her brother and uh, his wife and family, and then uh, our, our daughter, our oldest daughter and her family come in this week for Christmas. We're glad that we can be together, all of us. And uh, we do go back to Canada, Lord willing, even next month. And then uh, real travels start up a, a little bit after January. March is a big month for us, looking forward to a number of exciting kind of conferences and trips uh, for us. Some are repeats, but there's a brand new one in there. Uh, we'll start off uh, with a conference in Illinois. That's a repeat for me. I get to go to a conference and preach with Dr. Don Sisk, who's been in missions for over 50 years. He's 90 years old, still going strong, and it's always a joy of mine to be able to preach a conference with Dr. Sisk. It's also very intimidating to preach with Dr. Sisk. I mean, what can you preach that Dr. Sisk hasn't already preached himself with over 50 years in missions? Uh, come home, be home for less than 24 hours, and then get on a plane and head to Inuvik, Canada. Who knows where that is? That's what I thought. It's in the uh, Northwest Territories. It's right up on the, uh, what would be really the spillover of the Arctic Ocean and uh, not far from the Bering Strait. And uh, looking forward to that, Paul and I will fly up there. You fly partway in, then you take an ice road across. I got a, 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 a text from the pastor last night with a little video clip and he said they just opened the ice road but it wasn't quite ready truck completely sunk to its roof uh, in the ice road. He reassured me that it would be thicker ice by the time we got there. The driver of that truck did get out. He said the driver of the truck got out without even ever getting wet. And so <laughs> good for him on that one. And then uh, Paula and I will fly back, have less than 24 hours and head down to a conference. That's an annual conference for us in Orlando. So we'll go from about 40 below to about 90 above, all within about 24 hours or so. And honestly, you know, um, the, the pastor in, in Inuvik mentioned, he said, you'll go over 100 degrees in that short time. I said, when we lived in Shikudimi, we'd go over 100 degrees on a regular basis. It was 40 below zero outside, and it was 60-something degrees inside. That's 100 degrees difference. Uh, but we're looking forward to uh, those travels and uh, being in those different conferences. It's our privilege to be able to present missions and uh, help churches in the regards to world evangelization in those places. We're in Psalm 46 this morning, Psalm 46, and um, the title of this morning's message probably doesn't make any sense at the beginning of it, hopefully it will by the end, simply entitled Hands Off is the title of the message, Hands Off. Uh, I want to read all 11 verses of Psalm 46, and, and again, I, I, I trust that by the time we're done, you'll understand the title and why it's there uh, as I've uh, written it this morning. But Psalm 46, beginning in verse number 1 and reading through to verse 11. Follow along, if you would, please, as I read and notice what the Word of God says. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore will not we fear, though the earth be removed, and the, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the 
Mountains shake in the swelling, with the swelling thereof. Selah. Stop and think about it, the writer says. Verse 4. There is a river, the streams whereof shall make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacles of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be, she shall not be moved. God shall help her, and that right early. The heathen raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. The earth melted. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Come behold the works of the Lord, what desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease unto the end of the earth. He breaketh the bow and cutteth the spear in sunder. He burneth the chariot in the fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Selah. Psalm 46 is a, is a psalm that many people have come to in times of trouble and times of turmoil and have found great peace here. Charles Spurgeon said that the psalm might be entitled The Song of Holy Confidence. Martin Luther wrote the song mighty, A Mighty Fortress is Our God and it's believed that he used Psalm 46 as the basis for that song. And, and many times Martin Luther would be troubled, he'd be going through a hard time or uh, some difficulty in his life and he would stop with those around him and he would say, Let's, let us stop and sing Psalm 46 together. And in, in this psalm, I hope this morning that in a season that's supposed to be all about peace, but in a world that seems to be almost anything else at the moment, I hope that we can find some peace from what God has to say to us in Psalm 46. Let's pray together and then look at this psalm. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Lord, this morning I thank you simply that you are God, that you are King of kings and that you are Lord of lords, that you are sovereign, that you are all-powerful, and that you love us. And that you are gracious and merciful. I thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to die in our place. That we might have eternal life by simply believing in him. And I pray this morning that nobody would leave this place without their eternity settled in the person and in the salvation that Jesus Christ offers. And that, Lord, as your children, we would live a life that brings honor and glory to you. A life that shows that we have full confidence and faith in you as God. We'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. A few years ago, I was up in Quebec, Canada. I had the opportunity to be uh, with one of our missionaries there, and he happens to be a pilot as well, and he uses that plane to fly into remote areas of Quebec and bring the gospel to people all over uh, in areas where you really couldn't get otherwise if you didn't have a plane. And and uh, we were going to take a flight that day, mostly for the purpose of filming some video and getting some video recorded for a, a, a little short video we were working on and and such. And and uh, we were going to fly in the, uh, just a little tiny plane, a Cessna 172. Now, if you're not an aircraft guy, if you're not a pilot or anything, and I'm not a pilot, but I do like planes. I've always been fascinated. Uh, a Cessna 172 doesn't mean too, too much to you probably. I'll just tell you, it's, it's super small. It's a tiny little thing. Almost feels like you're flying. If you could imagine what it would feel like to sit on a kite in the air is how I would describe it. 
Um, I, I remember it was supposed to be just he and I and then his son, very young uh, at the time, uh, probably didn't weigh 50 pounds, I don't imagine. And I said to him, I said, hey, hey Wes, uh, Chris is here. Could Chris come with us? And he said, well, if Chris comes, then we're going to have to do it. We'll know how much everybody weighs because we got to calculate the weight and make sure the plane can actually handle it. So that's kind of the size of the plane, just to give you an idea. And uh, as we got there to the plane that day, it was my privilege to sit in the co-pilot's seat. I was glad not to sit in the back because I don't know how anybody could fit in the back, quite truthfully. But I, I learned quite quickly that sitting in the co-pilot's chair and the co-pilot's seat came with a lot of responsibilities. We uh, didn't take off until I read a checklist off to the, to the pilot, Wes, and, and went through all this stuff. And, and, and I thought they only kind of did that in the movies or something. I thought it must be all computerized now, now and all that. And he said, no, no, we're going to read through the checklist. You're going to read them off. I'm going to tell you check. And as if I would know if anything was wrong anyway. And, and he was just kind of going through the list. And then as, the, as we were done with that list, he began to give me some instructions he said, now you're sitting in the co-pilot's seat, so you've got to know some things about this plane. He began to describe all the gauges that were in front of me. He actually expected that I would remember what they did and what they indicated. He began to point to different buttons and different levers, and he began to tell me about their, their functions and what they would do. He, he began to tell me about the pedals that were at my feet. He began to tell me about the yoke that was in front of me, basically the steering wheel for the plane. And what he was telling me was, if anything happens to me, you've got to be the guy that flies the plane. That was all pretty reassuring. I have, through the years, had different pilots in the churches that we've had the privilege to pastor. We had an F-18 pilot in Quebec. We had multiple pilots in the church in Arizona. And, and pilots all have this one saying that's really reassuring. They will tell you time and again, I, I've heard it from numbers of pilots now, any landing that you walk away from is a good one. Any landing that you walk away from and can use the plane again is a perfect one. And here I am sitting here learning how to fly a plane for the first time. As we finished up my instructions, the missionary pilot pointed to a little box in front of me. And he said, now that's kind of probably the most important thing you need to know about. He said, that's the emergency transponder. It's a beacon in case we crash so they can find us. He said, now on this plane, it's not automatic. It, it doesn't activate if we crash. He said, so if it looks like we're going to have less than a stellar landing, you have to reach out and activate it. It was about that time I wish I had a better prayer life. As we finished up the instructions for the pre-flight, for the kind of pre-takeoff part of our flight, my missionary pilot friend, who's very respectful, very, very reserved, very uh, doesn't goof around and, and doesn't like, let's just say this, he would not do well in New England. He's not used to getting in people's faces. He doesn't like for people to get in his face, right? So New Englanders, we get it, right? We just as soon tell you something kind of in your face as to look at you. But he looked at me very sternly, very intently, kind of an intense, intense voice, and he said, now the very most important thing you need to learn before we take off is this. Don't touch anything. 
Don't touch anything unless I tell you to. Don't touch the yoke. Don't put your feet on the pedals. Don't play with the gauges or the levers. Don't touch anything. Do you know how hard it is to be sitting in the co-pilot seat? Guy like, you know, from New England, right? Don't touch anything. Now I'm like, I hope you have a heart attack. Because now I want to touch. Now I will land this plane. I don't care if I know what the, the gauges say or any of that. Now I want to put my feet on the pedals. The Lord gave us a, a great flight that day. We spent a lot of time in the air and I got a lot of video shot and all of that. And, and a couple times as I was shooting video, I, I, I wasn't paying close attention at all. And, and I was kind of climbing around like I shouldn't have been. And, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I, I should have had my seatbelt on, but it was kind of restricting. And I was just kind of moving around and not paying attention. And every once in a while, I would bump that yoke or I would hit the pedals. Now, they're the exact same yoke and pedal that he has, so everything I do messes him up, messes the plane up. And, and I would hit that, and he would look at me, and he'd go, hands off! Stop! You say, what has that got to do with Psalm 46? Well, I trust as we go through the passage, it'll begin to make sense with you. And, and I want to dive in and I want to look at Psalm 46. But before we even begin to understand this whole hands-off idea, the first thing I want to notice from Psalm 46 is I see in this psalm and I see in the passages that are the parallel passages of Psalm 46 a plethora of distractions. A plethora of distractions. I think it's important for you and I to take a few minutes and, and stop and consider the context of Psalm 46. You know, most of the Psalms are written by, by people in the Bible that we are familiar with that maybe either had a part in an Old Testament story we're familiar with or wrote other portions of the Bible. Uh, they're not all written by David. They're written by other people. In fact, this Psalm written by Hezekiah. Um, I think it's important for us to understand the context because the, the Psalms a lot of times will tell us the story, give us kind of the raw emotions of what people were going through when they experienced those stories and those real life accounts that we read about in some of the history books and, and so on and so forth. And, and Psalm 46 is one of those Psalms. Hezekiah is the man that we believe the Holy Spirit of God used to pen these words. The setting of Psalm 46 is God's miraculous deliverance of Jerusalem from the Assyrian siege on the city. And you can read about the, the, the siege in, in all the parallel passages in 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings chapter 19, and, and 2 Chronicles 32. Isaiah mentions them in uh, Isaiah 36 and in Isaiah 37. Now, you're probably familiar uh, somewhat with the name Hezekiah and, and maybe understand that Hezekiah was one of the good kings of the southern kingdom. Uh, Hezekiah's reign was marked by his zeal for the Lord. He was the king that wanted to kind of remove all the idolatry out of the southern kingdom. He was the king who wanted to turn the, the heart of the people back to the, the, the worship of Jehovah. That did not come without challenges. There was a lot of opposition to what he was doing with that. Um, he was also a warrior king. 
He was a king who had driven the Philistines out of the land. He was a king who had boldly stood up early on in his reign and said, we will not bow the knee to the Assyrians. We will not serve the Assyrians. In the fourth year of Hezekiah's reign, Shalemezer, the king of the Assyrians, began an assault on the northern kingdom of Israel. And that began kind of a, a three-year siege of the northern kingdom. Uh, the, then they finally would capture Samaria. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 18. And you can kind of imagine this morning and kind of think, this is why it's important to compare the context. Can you imagine the anxiousness of the southern kingdom as now an enemy uh, army is encamped right on their northern border? To kind of put it in today's world setting, how would you and I feel if Russia invaded Canada and took up residence in Canada as an enemy army? We would be a little anxious about that. We would be concerned about that. We would wonder what the future held. We, we would be worried about war on our northern border. A great deal of time passes and in the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib is now the king of Assyria and he decides that Hezekiah and the, the southern kingdom and Judah are next. And he begins a siege of all the fenced cities of the southern kingdom. There's 46 of them in all according to 2 Kings 18 and verse 13. Hezekiah's first reaction to all of this is to completely waffle on his earlier statement of we're not going to serve Assyria. And he begins to try to bargain for peace. And he decides that it would be better to pay off the Assyrians and, and hope for a little bargain for peace than to try to fight. The Bible tells us in 2 Kings 18 that the amount of that piece cost 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold. That would be about $73.68 million today, conservatively speaking. Now where did Hezekiah come up with that money? The Bible tells us where he came up with it. He pillaged the silver from the house of the Lord, according to the Bible. He took everything that was in the king's treasury, the taxes that people had been paying... He even cut the gold from the doors and the pillars of the temple that he himself earlier had installed in the temple. You can read all about that in 2 Kings chapter 18. And instead of looking to the Lord, Hezekiah leaned to his own understanding. He, he actually makes an alliance with the king of Egypt that we'll talk about later, which, which even the lost question. And Hezekiah kind of decides, I'm going to try to pay for peace. And Hezekiah's pillaging of the temple was all for naught because Sennacherib says, yeah, thanks for the payment, but we're still going to take over. And in 2 Kings 18, verse 19 to 24, this is what the Bible says. And Rabshakeh said unto them, now Rabshakeh is, is, is a general from the Assyrian army. He's come and he's there on the, uh, 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 around the walls of the southern kingdom. He's speaking to the king's representatives, but he's also speaking to the people who are gathered on the wall looking for news. Remember, they're kind of closed up. They can't get out. There's no CNN. There's no Fox News. They don't really know what's going on. And so their news is to go to the wall and hear what's going on. And Rabshakeh said unto them, Speak ye now to Hezekiah, thus saith the great king, the king of Assyria, What confidence is this wherein thou trustest? Thou sayest, but they 
are vain words. I have counsel and strength for war. Now on whom do thou trust that thou rebellest against me? Now behold, thou trustest upon the staff of a bruised reed, even upon Egypt. He's questioning, why would you trust in Egypt? I think there's a psalm that mentions about trusting in mankind as well and not being such a wise idea. Verse 22 says, But if you say unto me, We trust in the Lord our God, is not that he whose high place and whose altars Hezekiah hath taken away and hath said to Judah and Jerusalem, Ye shall worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Now therefore I pray thee, give pledges to my Lord, the king of Assyria, and I will deliver thee. So, so Sennacherib is talking to the people of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom, and he says, Hey, listen, why don't you just pay the taxes to my king and, and we'll go ahead and we'll, we'll treat you nicely. He says, and I'll give you, uh, and I'll deliver thee 2,000 horses. He's actually mocking them at this point. If thou be able on thy part to set riders upon them. You think you, gonna, you can come against me? I'll give you 2,000 war horses. You don't even have 2,000 guys who would fight. Verse 24, then wilt thou turn away thy face, uh, how then rather wilt thou turn away thy face of one of the captain of the least of my master's servants and put thy trust on Egypt for chariots and for horsemen. And I think it's important for us to understand that, that this conversation is taking place and Eliakim is the king's representative, uh, but also Rabshakeh understands something. All of Jerusalem is listening. And Eliakim realizes this as well and he says, hey, 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 listen, you don't need to speak to us in the Hebrew tongue. We understand Assyrian. Speak to us in the Assyrian tongue and then we'll let people know what you're saying. Because he understands that this is going to strike fear into the heart of the people. But Rabshakeh says, no, 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 no. It is my mission to strike fear into these people. And he begins and he continues to, to, with his message. And in 2 Kings 18, verse 28, he says this, now speaking really to the people gathered on the wall, hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus saith the king, let not Hezekiah deceive you, for he shall not be able to deliver you out of, my, out of his hand, the hand of the king of Assyria, that is. Neither let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord. The Lord will surely deliver. Uh, say, uh, the Lord will surely deliver us. And this city shall not be delivered into the hand of the king of Assyria. He says, "Don't listen to that. Hearken not unto Hezekiah. For thus saith the king of Assyria: Make an agreement with me by a present, and come out to me, and then eat yea, ye every man of his own vine and every one of his own fig tree, and drink ye every one into uh, one." the waters of his cistern, until I come and take you away into a land like unto your own, a land of corn and wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of oil, olive, and of honey, that you may live and not die. So basically it says you've got two choices. Do what I say, and you can live, or you die. Hearken not unto Hezekiah, when he persuadeth you, saying, The Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered at all his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And 2 Kings 18 closes with Eliakim taking this report and going back to Hezekiah with all that has been said. But for right now, we're going to come back to that, but for, for right now, I, I want to consider this kind of siege that, that the southern kingdom is under. And what we don't really get the sense of, I think, immediately in Psalm 46 is that Psalm 46 is actually covering a span of several months to at least a year. And, and, and Hezekiah writes a number of different things in here that are very important for us to consider. 
As we talk about a plethora of distractions, uh, Hezekiah uh, speaks of the catastrophes of nature that they were experiencing in their day. In verse 2 and 3, he says this, Though the earth be removed, and though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and are troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof. Hezekiah says, listen, there's earthquakes and there's water, there's flood, there's all these kind of natural disasters, these catastrophes of nature. Verses 6 and 9 of this text are the parallels of what we just read from 2 Kings 18 that speak of clashes of nations. This is a time of war. The people are under siege. And beyond that, if we would have gone further into 2 Kings 18, we would, would cover more of that information, how, how there was, a, there was a, a conflict for the cultural norms of the society. Hezekiah said, no more idols. But not everybody was on board with that. There were people who wanted to worship idols. There were people who did not want to worship Jehovah. Beyond all of that, try to put yourself in this setting. Think about it. I don't think it would be hard in the day and age in which we live with the news that we get all the time. War happening in the Middle East. We hear of natural disasters regularly. We live in a time of almost unprecedented conflict regarding cultural norms. I don't know about you, but if I were in the city, I would be wondering about how would I be impacted economically. How long would food supply last? What was going to be the health effect on people trapped up in the city like this? What about the next generation? How would they be affected? Was Hezekiah really the right leader for the time? Was this culture war between the, 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 the followers of Jehovah and the worshipers of idols, was it really worth all that attention? Would we be better to just yield ourselves to the Assyrians and say, you know what, sounds like a pretty good deal. They're going to let us live. And he talked about all that stuff we're going to get. Now besides that, just think of the, the kind of the personal conflicts people would have been going through at this time. People who were struggling with health issues would be struggling still. Marriages that were breaking were breaking still. Children that were wayward were wayward still. People who were anxious and discouraged and depressed were troubled still. People faltering in their walk were faltering still. And people who were disappointed in their relationships or in their jobs or in their personal lives were disappointed still. People who were lonely were lonely still. And, and those who were grieving were grieving still. Those who were, tempted or were trapped in their temptations were trapped still. And, and those who were frustrated by unmet expectations were frustrated still. There was a plethora of distractions that caused a, a great deal of uncertainty and turmoil. And, and uncertainty is the enemy of a life of peace and hope. Uncertainty is the enemy of an abundant life. And I wonder, as we sit here this morning, does any of this sound familiar? I think everything that the, 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 the southern kingdom was going through, to one extent or another, and I think they had it worse than we do, but I think we can identify with a lot of it. 
We live in a time of great uncertainty with an enormous amount of distractions. And people are anxious and they're tired and they're disappointed and they're frustrated and they're lonely and they're troubled and they're struggling with doubt and fear. And we sit and we look and we say, what in the world and how do we answer this? Do we have an answer? What is our response? The psalmist tells us. And I I see that the first response to this plethora of distractions is given to us in just two words of verse 10 of the psalm, where I see a call for a purposed discipline. A purposed discipline. Notice those first two words of verse 10 be still. Be still. Note that these words are spoken by God Himself, and He speaks in the imperative. He's not presenting an option, but a command. Not a suggestion, but a superlative. Now think back to everything we learned from 2 Kings 18. What was Hezekiah's first reaction to this impending conflict with the Assyrians? I'll do it my way. I'll pay for peace. No matter what it costs, I'll do it. I'll pillage the temple. If we study the parallel passages in 2 Chronicles and in Isaiah, Hezekiah also had formed this alliance I referred to earlier with the Egyptians. Even Rabshakeh questions that. Isaiah 36 and verse 9, How wilt thou then turn thy face of one of the captains of the least of my masters and put thy trust on Egypt? Hezekiah was the one who had stopped up the fresh water from coming into the city because he didn't want the Assyrians to capture it and gain that. He he also gathered the people together. And he tried to prepare for war. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 5 and 6 says he strengthened himself. He built up the wall that was broken. He raised up the towers and another wall without And he repaired Milo, the city of David, and he made darts and he made shields in abundance. And he set captains of war over the people and he gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city. And Hezekiah is preparing now to go to war. And you say, well, he's the king, he should do that. But he's the king that wants to bring worship of Jehovah back into the southern kingdom. And as you read the text, here's what you'll find. Hezekiah at this early stage never stopped and said, God, what should I do? God, what do you want me to do? God, how, 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 how do we handle this? In everything that Hezekiah does in the early stages, we could look and say, that was normal. A king should do that. I probably would have done a lot of the same things. And all I'm simply saying is, when a plethora of distractions hit us, our normal reaction is, Let me lean to my own understanding. Let me try to figure this out. If you read the parallel passages, some would even say it seems like like Hezekiah has brought a, a bit of spirituality to the way he's behaving. 2 Chronicles 32, verse 6 through 8 says this, And he, Hezekiah, spake comfortably to them, the people, saying, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of, of the king of Assyria, for all the multitude that is with him. For there be more with us than with him. 
With him is our arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. Now those are great words, except for they're kind of empty. In fact, Rabshakeh even called them vain words. Why? Because they're coming from a man who just robbed the temple of God to pay for peace. And I think it's so interesting and it's so telling that it's not until the end of 2 Kings 18 when Hezekiah finally hears really kind of how bad it is and how the people have listened to all that Rabshakeh had to say that he finally goes into the house of the Lord. He rents his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes into the temple and how gracious is God. How gracious is God? Because here is Hezekiah in the temple that he has robbed, now seeking help from God. He's taken matters into his own hands, and now he's finally turned to God. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, is going to respond to, to Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah. But just for a moment, I want to stop and I want to consider how gracious is God? How gracious is he? But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. For he, God the Father, hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. How gracious is God that when you and I we're running from God, doing our own thing, ignoring God, even rebelling against God. God sent Jesus Christ to pursue us. Jesus said, I am come to seek and to save that which is lost. And, and God sent Jesus to, to die in our place that we might have eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And how gracious is our God this morning that, that Hezekiah is in the temple that he robbed. He's now seeking help from God. And God sends word and he says in 2 Kings 19 verse 6 and 7, uh, Isaiah said unto them, Thus shall ye say to your master, to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord, Be not afraid of the words which thou hast heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. Behold, I will send a blast upon him, and he shall hear a rumor, and he shall return to his own land, and I will cause him to fall by the sword in his own land. Now the response from God goes on, and it's actually in two parts. Because not only is God going to send a blast upon Sennacherib, who's the king of Assyria, literally what it means is God is going to strike fear into the king's heart. His purpose was to strike fear into the people of the southern kingdom by sending his ambassador there with puffed up words. And God says, I heard what he had to say. I'll send a blast into him. And by the way, he's not even going to make it to the battle. He's going to get killed in his own land. And the second part of God's reply is not only that a Sennacherib is going to be taken out of the picture, but in 2 Kings 19 and verse 34, he says this, I will defend this city to save it for mine own sake. And really, if I could summarize this, what God is saying to Hezekiah is, Hezekiah, you've been doing this over here and this over here, and you're over here dealing with the Egyptians, and you're trying to barter for peace over here, and you're preparing for war over here, but Hezekiah, I've got this. I've got this. And Hezekiah, I'm not going to need to use any of your plans. Anything you developed in your own wisdom while you are leaning onto your own self and your own ways, there won't be any need for your earthly allies. I will bring deliverance by myself. 
There's such a great picture of our salvation here. Because when we were dead in trespasses and sins, God quickened us. When we could do nothing of our own, God did everything. And long before Hezekiah began to move the pieces of the chessboard into place, all the while ignoring God to hopefully bring about a victory, God had already determined what was going to happen. And the Lord in his sovereignty declared victory before the Assyrians even had an opportunity to fight. And in the matter of our salvation, this is exactly what the Lord did. Before the foundations of the world, he decided how he would save us and by which means he would offer us salvation. And what I'm saying this morning is what I'm trying to get across is that sometimes we find ourselves so anxious and so confused and, and in such turmoil and the world seems to be in such chaos and everything's upside down and we can't make any sense of it and we really don't know what to do, but we decide, hey, I'm just going to jump in and try to do something. We end up fighting battles. God's already won. One of my favorite songs tells it like this. There is peace that outlasts darkness, hope that is in the blood. There's future grace that's mine today that Jesus Christ has won. So I can face tomorrow for tomorrow's in your hands. All I need you will provide just like you always have. There's mercy in the waiting, manna for today. And when it's gone, I know you're not. You are my hope and stay. When the sea is raging, your spirit is my help. He'll fix my eyes on Jesus Christ. I'll say that it is well. Oh, I know that it is well. I know how the story ends. We will be with you again. You're my savior, my defense. No more fear in life or death. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. No matter what comes my way, I will overcome. Don't know what you're doing, but I know what you've done. I'm fighting a battle. You've already won. Take that all back to Psalm 46 and verse 10 and, and God's response to Hezekiah in just those two words. Be still. Hezekiah, be still. Literally saying, let go. Relax. Stop, Hezekiah. Be still. Drop it. Very, very literally. He's saying, take your hands off. Don't touch anything. I've got this. But that requires a purpose discipline, doesn't it? I don't know about you, but I like to be hands-on. It's hard to be still. It's, it's hard to just stop and let go. It's, it's hard to just say, you know what? Eh, I won't try to fix it. Because we want to do something. We, we want to grab a hold. We, we want to try to be in control. We want to, bring, we want to bring some kind of order out of the chaos around us. But usually all that does is give a false sense of control. And I don't know about you, but I have found in my life that sometimes I fight so hard for control, I can make that an idol. And Hezekiah may have tried to chase all the idols out of, out of Judah, but he didn't chase this one out of his heart. 
It's so hard to let go, to be still. That day in that Cessna over Quebec, we had a beautiful, uh, beautiful flight. But there were a couple times where it got pretty bumpy, where we hit some turbulence. And, and here I am sitting in the co-pilot's chair. And I've got the gauges in front of me. And, and I've been trained now. And I've got the levers. And, and I think I know what some of them do. And, and I've got the yoke and the pedals. And I'm pretty sure I can put my feet on them and make the plane do something I already have by accident. But I got to just sit back and be still and don't touch anything and let the guy that's sitting in the pilot's chair next to me do all the flying. Uh, I'm going to tell you, it was it took it took at times a very purposed discipline to say I'm not going to touch a thing. Ever been sitting? Ever been sitting uh, in, in the in the passenger seat of the car, ladies? And your husband's driving. Well within the speed limit, at least in his mind. I, I don't speak from experience. I wouldn't know anything about this. I've read about this. And you can see the car up ahead, but it doesn't seem like he can. And what are you doing? Hitting the brakes in the passenger seat. Because you want to be in control. But God says, you're going to have to learn to be still. In the midst of, of all of these distractions and a plethora of distractions in uncertain times when everything is so chaotic, God says, be still. And that's going to take a purpose discipline. But there's something else that goes along with it. And, and I'm so glad there is not just a peaceful, di a, a, a purpose discipline, but a peaceful deliberation. I don't know about you, but I'm glad that God didn't stop with be still. Be still. That he puts some more there. One of my favorite sayings I learned in Quebec and when, I, when I was learning French, I, I learned this phrase that Quebec parents say to their kids all the time. And I watched it like struck fear into the heart of their children. And they would look at them and they would go, Ne bouge pas, pas un mot! Now, if you don't speak French, you don't know a word what I just said, but what they're basically saying is, don't you move and don't you say a word. It's okay for a parent to say that to a kid who's unruly in the restaurant, but God says to you and I, be still. Why? Because I want you to know I'm God. That's a peaceful deliberation. And know that I am God. Be still and remember who's in charge. Be still and remember that I'm God. Be still and, and remember that you tell people that I'm God. Act like it. Be still and know that, that God is still sovereign and God is omnipotent and God is the creator and he's just and he's holy and he's perfect and he is always and only good. Be still and know and act like you know that I am God. Hezekiah describes this for us throughout the psalm. Besides the chaos he mentions, he, he also reminds us three times that God is our shelter. He says in verse 1, in verse 7, and in verse 11 that God is our refuge. In verse 1, he, he tells us he's our strength, he's all powerful. How powerful is he? Verse 6 is an amazing verse. He uttereth his voice, the earth melteth. That's amazing to me. He is sufficient. 
Verse 1 says a very present help in, in trouble. The idea is that he's our assistant. He's not our co-pilot. He is always present. He is always sufficient. He is more than sufficient. He is sovereign. Verse 7 and 11. He's the Lord of hosts and, and none can stand against him. And, and by the way, Hezekiah takes the time to remind us that this Lord of hosts that none can stand against and when he speaks the earth melts, he's with us. No wonder Hezekiah gives that invitation in verse number 8. Come behold. Come behold the works of the Lord. What desolations he hath made in the earth. He maketh wars to cease on the earth. He breaketh the bow. He cutteth the spear asunder. He burneth the chariot with fire. And, and, and what he is saying to us and what God is saying to us is in times of chaos, in times of turmoil, when it seems like everything is just so chaotic, be still and know that I am God and that I love you. This is the God that is my Father and, and nothing can come to me that is not Father filtered or Savior sanctioned and He has a purpose and a plan in all that He does. And I'm reminded of what Paul writes in, in Romans 8 and verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? You know, that day in the Cessna over Quebec, I had to fight not to put my hands on the yoke. I had to fight not to put my hands on the, on the pedals. And the way I, the way I kind of disciplined myself to do that was I looked at my friend Wes and I said, he's an experienced pilot. He's got this. And I had to remind myself that even though I thought maybe I could do it, he could do it so much better. And if I could trust my friend in the pilot seat that day how much more can I trust God think about our text 185,000 soldiers are laying siege to the city the city has been shut up for months food and water supplies are running scarce Hezekiah has looted the temple in a vain attempt to purchase peace he's made useless alliances with earthly kings all the people are watching this they're anxious and they're frightened and can you picture God God is not in the throne room pacing, wondering what he's going to do. He's not wringing his hands. He's not thinking to himself, oh no, Hezekiah's got this all wrong. How am I going to fix this? No, he's just like Isaiah describes him, high and lifted up. And his glory shines forth still. And in his perfect timing, without ever raising a hand, God wipes out the Assyrian forces. It's an amazing story. It's amazing what God did. And what I'm trying to communicate this morning is that we can have this purposed discipline and we can be still in the midst of the chaos if we will just have this peaceful deliberation and remember God is God. And he's got this. And, and there's never a time when he's ever been out of control. And the more you trust him, the more you can learn to trust him. And this, this incident with the Assyrians was really over before it ever started. And if God can strike down 185,000 Assyrian soldiers, what am I facing in my life that he can't handle? How is it that I so easily convince myself and fool myself that I can handle the things that I think are too big for God. 
Am I the only one that does that? You see the fault in that thinking? This is too big for God, but I've got it. So much better to just have a peaceful deliberation. So much more I want to say there, but I need to move on. I want to notice one last thing from the psalm. There's a plethora of distractions. We live in that world. There, there's a purpose discipline that we should work on in our own lives. There's a peaceful deliberation that we can have if we know Jesus Christ is our personal Savior. He's God. He's in control. What's the result? Well, there's a powerful declaration. A powerful declaration. Verse 10. God says this. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. You know, when we live in times like we do, and we can live with a quiet, peaceful spirit, focused on God, trusting in God, walking day in and day out, knowing that God has got this. Nothing that you and I face is bigger than he is. It affords us this opportunity for people to notice Christ in us, the hope of glory. Let me tell you about another flight I was on. This time I was flying from Arizona to California. And it was a pretty good flight for most of the flight. Left out of Phoenix, followed the Sierra Nevadas all the way up on their kind of their eastern side. And, and uh, when you fly that route, you take a hard left at Lake Tahoe. And you start heading west. And then you land going south into Sacramento. And we had a pretty good flight. Plane was quiet. Lady that was sitting next to me really never spoke the entire flight. But when we made our approach to Sacramento, you could just feel. In fact, when we made our hard left at Tahoe heading west, you could feel that we were going into a headwind. So as we turn south to land in Sacramento, we're, hitting with a, we're getting hit with a crosswind. And I mean, it's a stiff crosswind. We are getting tossed. And I experienced a landing that day that I've never experienced in my life. I actually looked it up on YouTube later to find out what in the world we did. I thought it was some kind of maneuver that they use in, in Iraq or something, some kind of military maneuver. I've learned since it actually is. <laughs> but this was what pilots will call crabbing. And what the pilot would do is he would take and he would turn us hard into that wind. But as he turned us hard into that wind, he would make a nosedive. I'm not talking about some little soft land. I'm talking a nosedive. He's trying to get us down close. And then he would straighten out and let us get blown back over in line with the runway. And every time he did that, the plane was making all this noise. And you could see the ground coming up pretty fastly. And all of a sudden, I noticed that people came alive. People are praying out loud, mostly Hail Marys. The lady next to me who hasn't spoken the whole flight is now fully engaged. She wants to talk. I just think it's all pretty interesting. But I am paying attention. I have been on five different commercial flights where the... Where the the air, uh, what do we call those, the stewardesses, the, the people, you know, that tend to you, where they screened. When they do that, I usually pay attention, but I figure since I lived through all of them, not much to worry about. But I'm paying attention. 
And she's paying attention. And she says, my dad, he's a pilot. And I have flown hundreds and hundreds of times in the Sacramento with him. I've never seen anything like this. I thought, well, we're pretty close to the ground. I mean, the worst thing that could happen would just be a hard bump. But I didn't think that would be a good thing to say out loud. And I figured since she's going to talk about her earthly father, I should talk about my heavenly father. Because he's got this. No matter what happens, he's got this. You know that lady that didn't want to speak the whole way from Phoenix to Sacramento? All of a sudden, she wanted to hear about Jesus. She was glad to listen to the gospel. She said she had never heard the gospel before. She was so glad to listen that when we got off the plane, she followed me through the terminal so I could finish the gospel presentation. I wish I could tell you I know she got saved that day. I don't know what she did with the information, but I do know she got introduced to Jesus that day. How did it happen? No credit to myself whatsoever. None. But I could remember sitting on a plane. God is God. He's got this. I hope the pilot has it, but ultimately God's got it. It's all in his hands. And I can trust him. And the very worst thing that can happen to me today is I go to heaven. Which actually ain't so bad. But that's a great opportunity to tell people about the Lord. God said, if you'll be still. And you'll act like you know that I'm God. I will be exalted in all the earth. Let me ask you a question. In this chaotic world we're living in, are people taking notice that you serve God who is God and that you trust that he's got this? And Maybe today, maybe today you need to make the first step and say, I want to I know more about this Jesus who, when I couldn't do a thing and still can't do a thing, he came to seek and to save me. And as a Christian, I, I just want to encourage us, encourage us in this chaotic world, we can. We can have a purpose discipline. We can be still. We have a peaceful deliberation. God is God. And we can have a powerful declaration after that. This is the God you need to meet. Father, thank you for this day, for your goodness and your love and, and the privilege to be here this morning as pastor comes to close out the service and, and lead us in this last part of our service. You have your will and way in all that's done here. May we make the decisions you'd have us to in Jesus' name. Amen.